at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are listening to us for the first time here at 88.7, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's phone calls as they've been studying God's word. Maybe there's a passage that has challenged them or an issue they're facing in their life or ministry that they'd like biblical counsel on. Well, if we can help you, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859, 525-1859, the 843 area code. Now, when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. However, you're happy to give it. We're glad to receive it. Or you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. Well, Rick, here we are on an important day as people have a chance to express their opinion as an American. And I hope people will take that opportunity and get out and vote today. But let's go ahead and we'll jump right in. I know we've had a number of email questions that have come in, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll take live callers as they come through. All right, Pastor. Yes, indeed. Uh, Debbie and Dave from Madison, South Dakota, right? My husband and I are full-time RVers. I'm sure you don't remember us, but we're in Iowa, close to our grandkids, which are 18 months and four, almost five years old. Their mom doesn't know if there is a God. That's coming from the four-year-old. We get her alone about once every three weeks, and God is our conversation. I'm struggling to give her answers. Can you point me in the right direction to help her? Thank you. Well, um, Debbie and Dave uh, calling us here from South Dakota. This is a really important issue. And I'm thankful that as grandparents, uh, your daughter, though she is espousing to be an atheist, uh, is at least entrusting you with opportunity to spend time with her daughter, your granddaughter. And you can have a profound influence in your in her life without a doubt. So with that said, um, let me first say that there's probably some kind of issue that's underscoring your daughter's life that would make her say that she's an atheist. Whenever a person says, well, I don't believe the Bible's true, or I'm not sure if there's a heaven or a hell, or... I don't know if there's a God or I think there is no God, then you're typically 99.9% of the time dealing someone with, with a moral issue that is going on in their life. And so what they're doing is they're suppressing the truth that they know about God as Romans 1 teaches. See, all men know there's a God, of course, through his creation, God's eternal attributes, his divine nature and eternal power, Paul says, are clearly seen not vaguely seen, but clearly seen through the things that he has created. So men know there's a God via the creation. No one can 
uh, say, is there a God, does God exist, according to the Bible? And that's why the Bible devotes one half of one verse to atheism. It simply says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, God's word is very clear that all men know there is a God. The watch of my wrist has over 150 working pieces in it. If you took the back off, you'd see all these gears and springs and the, the design points to a designer. The creation points to a creator. And we also know in Romans 2.15 when he speaks of the Gentiles, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they do not have the Bible, uh, and they do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying Gentiles, and here the term Gentile is synonymous with a pagan. Sometimes it's used, um, you know, when Jesus said, don't pray like the Gentiles. He's saying, don't pray like the pagans. Now, unfortunately, most Gentiles in Christ's day were pagans, but not all of them. Uh, But sometimes the word Gentile is used in deference to a Jew, but here in reference to a pagan. So when pagans, so to speak, do not have the law, that is, they do not have any written scripture, and yet the Bible says they instinctively do the things of the law, these are a law to themselves. How so? And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So men who don't have a Bible have a Bible, so to speak, written in their hearts. God's moral code has been written into our spiritual DNA. That's part of being made in the image of God. Uh, so when my friend Wayne Bauman went to reach the uh, Arumba people in Papua New Guinea, uh, that group of natives, 28,000 natives that he initially approached, uh, there was a certain moral code within their culture. It was wrong to take your neighbor's wife. It was wrong to um, steal something. It was wrong to murder. How did they know that? They had never even seen a Bible because God's law was written in their heart. So men know there's a God through creation and conscience, and so your daughter knows. So when she says there's no God, there's a moral issue that is driving that decision. Maybe she's living with another man, sleeping around. Maybe she's Uh, on drugs. I don't know what the moral issue is, but I can promise you there is some kind of a moral issue that's going. And so what she's doing is she's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. Professing to be wise, God says they became fools. But there's hope for your daughter. God is big. God loves your daughter as you love her, and he loves her 10,000 times more than you do. So you pray for your daughter that God would um, overwhelm her by the Spirit of God with a sense of guilt, that that guilt would just come into the forefront of her mind, that her conscience would not be so seared and hardened and calloused, that she would really feel the guilt that comes by the Spirit of God, that she might flee for an answer to Jesus Christ. In the interim, you know, that little child has a tender heart, and without criticizing the mother, you just keep praying for your little grandchild that grandchild may be the person that leads your daughter ultimately to Christ. Malachi speaks of a, how a child can lead a parent, and that could certainly happen uh, through the conversion of your granddaughter or grandson, whatever we're dealing with here. And so you pray with that child. You teach them what the Scripture says. My recommendation is that you uh, purchase what's called the Picture Bible. Now, there's a lot of Bibles under that title or guys. It's not a copyrighted title, 
but it's the one that is put out by David C. Cook uh, Publications. It's called The Picture Bible. In my view, it is still the single most accurate uh, scriptural-based children's Bible that's well-illustrated that's on the market. And you could begin to read that to your child as uh, he or she grows and, and cultivate her heart. And thank God that, and pray that God would allow your daughter to um, let you keep influencing your her child in that way. Um, hopefully, she'll she'll have enough sense to to do that. So that's where I would begin. That that's a really great question, and I feel burdened for you as I know you're burdened for your daughter as well. Uh, let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning. Hey, thanks for calling today. Yeah, how can we be of help to you, my friend? Yes, I heard one of the messages you preached on the, on the, radio, on the website that you had about the spiritual Christian. You mentioned that the, the persons who cause a division is the one who's not saved or a, or a Christian who's not another with the Word of God. Yes. But sometimes that's not always the case because there's Christians who try to expose the errors in teaching in the churches. And then they cause division because they're the ones who really know the truth and kind of show the truth in the churches. And so they cause division, not because they want to cause division, but because they try to show the truth in the churches. So like one time, like Martin Luther said that curse, love, and unity, because sometimes people don't want to deal with the non-essentials in the church. So that's how a person want to deal with that, that causes divisions, or sometimes because of the person who kind of show the errors of the different false teachings or errors of doctrine in the churches, so that causes division. Not because the person is a troublemaker, but because they told that shoulder truth causes division. So it's like, example, sometimes on churches they say, well, uh, you fall from grace, but they, they say that, well, if you sin, you fall from grace, but if they read uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, if you read in its proper context, and I say it's not referring to uh, when they say, oh, a person sinned, he fell from grace, but if that passes, they'll really more like they were trying to uh, add law to, to to the work of Christ. That's St. That Paul said that, that you have fallen from grace. Not that, that you, you sin, that you fall from grace. Can you explain all this to me then, sir? All right, all right. You, you raise a lot of really good issues, so let me see if I can uh, respond to this question that you have. Um, you're, you're basically asking, is there a distinction between a Christian who causes division and an individual who is purposing to point out doctrinal error? And so uh, let, let me respond. When uh, you're referring to a message I preached a couple Sundays ago, I preached a message on the Spirit-filled life, and I said that you can basically take the entire world and divide them into three categories, that of a spiritual man, that's a spiritually mature believer, a Christian who has walked in the Spirit over a period of time such that they would be considered spiritual, not having arrived, for none of us do in this side of glory, but they do have a mature, grown-up, and a growing relationship with Christ. Then we spoke of a natural man, and a natural man, the Bible says, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, he cannot appraise them because they're spiritually appraised. And so this is a person without God, without Christ, who's never been regenerated. They've been born once, but not born twice. And so while they are physically alive, the Bible says they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And when the Apostle Jude describes them, there's one chapter in Jude, so we usually just say Jude 19, 
instead of Jude one nineteen, since there's just one chapter. But in Jude 19, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, or in the uh, more literal rendering in the margin, merely natural. Uh, so we're talking about the same kind of person, a, a merely natural person, a worldly-minded person. And again, that's in deference to 1 Corinthians 2.15 that describes a spiritual man as having the mind of Christ. When we're born again, we have a new capacity to absorb spiritual truth that we didn't have prior to conversion. That's why Jesus said you must be born again, not just simply to enter the kingdom of God, but Jesus said you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Some people cannot see, they cannot comprehend, they cannot absorb spiritual truth because they've not been regenerated by the Spirit. And of such people, Jude, who's dealing with apostates, people who claim to be Christians but really are not, he said these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded or merely natural, devoid of the Spirit. That is, they are without the Holy Spirit. So one cause of division in the church are people who come in and they claim to be Christians, but they are really not. And so some divisive persons are just unregenerate persons. And sometimes we haven't spotted them because we haven't asked them basic doctrinal questions. But it's possible, too, for a person to know the right theological answers, to have a head knowledge of the faith without having come with the heart, for the heart man believes unto righteousness. But with that said, not only can natural or non-Christians create division in the church, but so can what we would call a carnal Christian. And so a carnal Christian is not a natural man in that he has the Holy Spirit living in him. Paul will say, oh, don't you know to the Corinthians that you are, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So he assumes the Corinthians are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And yet when he describes them here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he gives kind of a a very sobering description of them. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, that is, to grown-up believers, but as to men of flesh. The Greek word there is the word that is often translated as carnal, to men of carnality, as to infants, as... um, As infants in Christ or babes in Christ, some translations render it, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. So he's looking back. He's reminding them of what they were like when he first came. We learn from the book of Acts that Paul was the one who was blessed of God to plant, to start a church in Corinth. There was no believers in Corinth prior to Paul's coming there. And so Paul goes to the city of Corinth. He preaches the gospel. People are regenerated by the Spirit. And as new Christians, they were infants in Christ. I gave you, he's looking back to their conversion, milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Now, here's the change in tense. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. About four years had transpired when Paul would have expected them to have grown up more so that they could get past just the milk of the word, but to more in-depth truth. But he said, you're still not able, for you're still carnal or fleshly. How do I know? Well, there's jealousy and strife among you. There's division among you. And in that sense, you're walking like mere men. You're acting like a natural man. He's already described them earlier in the book in the first chapter. He said, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, there are quarrels among you. 
Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. So Paul is reminding them that they are manifesting the works of the flesh. They're manifesting the what a baby does. You know, a baby's just kind of a whiner and wants his own ways. And at some point they have to grow up and they have to mature and they have to move from being a self-centered to a Christ-centered person. So some followed Paul maybe because, you know, he was a great theologian. Some said, I follow Apollos, maybe because he was a great preacher. Some said, I'm a Cephas, maybe because he was one of the original 12, unlike Paul or Apollos. And some were of the so-called Christ party. We only follow, follow Jesus. We don't acknowledge anyone else. And so they were divisive in their hearts. They were not unifiers in the church. So the two causes of division in the church are done by natural men, non-Christians, and people who are out of fellowship with the Lord, who have remained baby Christians. And it's really unnatural to stay a baby Christian, and yet that's where so many Christians lie. Now, that's different from pointing out false doctrine in the church. You mentioned the book of Galatians, and in the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with people who had come into the church who were not true Christians, they were called Judaizers, who were trying to uh, divide uh, the church with error. And so Paul begins the epistle, says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which you've, uh, that we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And the word there is anathema. It's a pretty strong word. Uh, He is to come under a curse of God, damned to hell, so to speak, we might paraphrase it. So if an angel, or even if somehow um, Paul changed his message from the original message that Christ had delivered, uh, and they preached a different gospel, not that Paul ever would, but he's, he's trying to emphasize his point, then that person is to be accursed. And so he says, as we've said before, this isn't anything new, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, he is to be accursed. And so what was happening here amongst the Galatian church is these Judaizers came in, and they said that faith alone in Christ alone was not enough that you had to uh, be circumcised, you had to basically become a Jew, you had to enter into Christianity through the vestibule of Judaism. Now, the Corinthians hadn't abandoned the gospel. There's only one gospel, and you're only saved once, and you can't fall out of salvation. But when you reference here Galatians 5, where he speaks of the fact that some had fallen from grace— He is not saying that they had lost their salvation, but he is reminding them, you have been severed from Christ, you are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. They had fallen out of the realm. He's dealing not with justification, but with sanctification. And so to teach that, um, to embrace the teaching of the Judaizers that these born-again Christians had embraced, and they said, "Well, well, we are saved, but maybe they're right, maybe the Gentiles still need to be circumcised. They were basically saying that you are sanctified on a different principle than by which you are justified. So Paul goes back to justification, reminds them how they came to Christ, and they hadn't changed their opinion on that. 
But what they were doing was they were taking an application from these false teachers who were not born again because they were adding to the gospel. And Paul says if righteousness comes through the law, in this case through circumcision, um, then Christ dead was dead in vain. His death was not sufficient. But because it is sufficient, we're saved by Christ alone and our faith in Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the three uh, solas of the five solas of the Reformation. And so with that said, when you operate in your sanctification on a different principle, you're entering into the realm of error. So Paul wasn't being a divisive person by telling the people the truth. You know, sometimes people say, well, we all need to hold hands and be unified. Well, it depends what you mean by unified. We're to be unified with other born-again Christians, but we're not to be unified with those who are in error. So I won't hold hands with two Presbyterian pastors in our town who are performing homosexual marriages. Why? Because they're, they're lost. They're unregenerate. They're not believers. So Christ doesn't call me to be unified with them. Um, but he does call me to be unified with God's people. And that's not to say, too, that God's people can't fall into error. They can. And that's why God calls shepherds, under shepherds of the church, pastors, elders, deacons, bishops, all referring, um, um, you know, to, to shepherd the flock of God, to protect God's people and to teach them truth uh, so that they might be uh, saved Uh, kept from doctrinal error that would keep them from growing and maturing in their relationship with the Lord Jesus. So anyway, you've raised a good question, and I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one, Rick. A lot have come in here. Indeed, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Tony, T-O-N-I, would like to know, do you recommend any easy reading material on how to talk to Jewish friends about Jesus? Well, um... Yeah, there's a, there's a booklet that I've used for the last almost 40 years. It's called Life with the Messiah. It's it's basically a uh, steps to peace with God. Would you like to know God as your friend? You know, step-by-step presentation of the gospel, but using the Old Testament. And so it's very, very well done. In fact, every time I go to Israel, and God willing, we're planning to take a group in uh, September of 2019, and if you're listening today on January the 13th of 2019, that Sunday evening, we'll be having an informational meeting for those who think they might be interested in going, but you can go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the Israel brochure. It will tell you everything about the trip. You can download the brochure if you wish, print it out, I can even register online if you're interested in going. It's a life-changing trip. But one of the things I do for everyone who comes is I give them two of those booklets. And I think they are the best booklet I've ever used in Jewish evangelism. I ministered on Duke University's campus for five years, and that campus was 25% Jewish. And so amongst those Jewish students, that's the booklet I would use. They weren't interested in looking at any New Testament books, many of the Jewish students. They just were interested in the Old Testament. They only acknowledged the Tanakh, as they would call it, not the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament as Christians because to us it is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that the prophets foretold have been fulfilled in Jesus. But they just uh, have one Bible. They call it the Tanakh which is an anacronym for Torah, 
uh, the uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the wisdom literature. And so they call the Old Testament the Tanakh. And so this presentation uh, is totally from the Tanakh. It, it shows from the Old Testament that Jesus is Messiah. In fact, Paul would go to various times, towns, and he would reason from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that Jesus is the Christ. And when the Bible refers to that, he is using the Tanakh. He's using the Old Testament. The entire plan of salvation is found in the Old Testament. So that would be a great little... Um, Booklet. I actually have an Orthodox Jewish friend who has been reading Mere Christianity uh, by C.S. Lewis. That's kind of a philosophical argument for the deity of Christ. And it's a great little argument. You know, C.S. Lewis was initially a self proclaimed agnostic. Um, and, and again, there's no such thing really as an agnostic, but still, uh, he uh, called himself that. And um, and in his pride, God began to break it, and God began to change him and, and show him that he had a need for a Savior, and he had to ask, who really is Jesus Christ? And oftentimes we hear that third-century argument uh, that Lewis summarized in three words, Lord, liar, lunatic. Uh, we might say um, deity, deceived, or deceiver. A lot of words that we could use, but Jesus, because he claimed to be God, um, was either a deceiver, and if he was a deceiver, he was a liar. If he was a liar, he was a sinner and could save no one, and really evil beyond Hitler because he believed that men would die and lose their lives because they acknowledged he was Lord, and millions have given their life's blood following Jesus. For Jesus to propagate such a lie, especially knowing and even sharing in advance the implications, you'd have to say he was worse than Hitler, or he was a lunatic if he claimed to be God as he did. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one, claim after claim of deity. Uh, For him to make such a claim that he was the Son of God and not be, then he was deranged, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. But the point is, is you can't say like most Jewish people do, that Jesus was just another rabbi, just another teacher. He was a teacher, but he was more than a teacher. He was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was God in human flesh. And so C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Mere Christianity, gives somewhat of a philosophical argument. But if you go to the website Life in Messiah, and um, there's some, I'm sure you could find uh, some contact information there and tell them you're interested in their uh, their gospel presentation in booklet form. Uh, it's entitled Lahem to Life. And uh, it, you'll find it, I think, very useful. And it's one of the, I think, best presentations I've ever been able to find or to use in sharing the gospel. So those are kind of starting points, starting places. You could certainly uh, run down some other roads, but that's where I would begin. So Very good. Uh, Craig from Pooler writes, Pooler, Georgia writes, I have three young kids, ages five, three, and one. I've been studying the book of Revelation, and I thought of a question the other day. What happens to all of the children who are not of the age of accountability during the rapture? I firmly believe in God being just and in, in his sovereignty, but I was wondering if there was anything in the Bible that touches on this specifically. I am only in the 17th chapter, so maybe it could be in the chapters ahead. It's a scary thought that they wouldn't come with us should the rapture occur tomorrow. 
Well, this is a question that often uh, comes up on the Bible line about will children be taken up in the rapture? Well, let me just first say the Bible doesn't specifically address the issue as to what happens to babies, infants, and even small children when the rapture occurs. And I think this causes some consternation in the minds of parents and as it is in your mind, because it would seem just unthinkable for you to think that your children would be left behind for the great tribulation. Well, um, I think to really get a handle on this, you have to ask another question, and that concerns what happens to a child who dies before they are accountable, uh, what we often refer to as the age of accountability. Now, when we use the term age of accountability, there is no age that's given in Scripture. Uh, But God does speak of children being a part of the coming kingdom. Uh, he gives an example even to of King David, if you remember on that occasion when when David had uh, lost his little infant baby. And of course, before he dies, he's, he's praying, he's fasting, he's begging God that the Lord might spare his son. And, and then the baby dies and the servants are just bewildered because they... Uh, he gets up and he washes himself and he uh, has a meal set before him and he eats. And they they were afraid to even tell him of the news because they thought, well, if he's this despondent while the child's just sick but still alive, what might he do when he finds out the child is dead? Maybe maybe he'll harm himself. Maybe he'll, he'll be so covered over in guilt he'll kill himself. Um, but he has an entirely opposite reaction where he gets up and enjoys a meal. And they said, we don't, we don't get it, Dave. And he said, look, while, while the child was alive, there was a possibility God might have, you know, healed the child. But God has obviously chosen otherwise. And then he makes this incredible statement in Second Samuel 12 that he said, while the baby can't come to me, someday I will go to the baby. David, the anointed one, uh, a prophet of God himself, believed that someday he would go and be with his child again. Why? Because his child was not accountable. Jesus in the New Testament uses illustrations where in one occasion he takes a little child in his arms and another occasion he stands the child next to him. So they're obviously of different ages, but in both situations he likens the kingdom of God to little children. So um, I have a course at the... Um, Community Bible Church every Sunday at 9, 15, and 11. We call it the Discovery Class, and it's really a 45-week discipleship course. And uh, one section of the course concerns the 10 most commonly asked questions about uh, Christianity. And so uh, one of the questions concerns, what about people who've never heard the gospel? You know, what about the guy in Papua New Guinea who uh, never even heard the name of Jesus, is God going to send him to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whose name he's never heard? That's an important question. We answer that. I have a booklet written on that. It's available on Amazon. I don't make any money on it, so I'm not pushing books. But that is available on the state of the unevangelized. But another question is concerning those who can't believe, whether it's little children who haven't yet come to the intellectual Uh, ability to comprehend the gospel, or even severely retarded people, or for that matter, little babies that have been aborted or miscarried. Uh, They have not reached a point of accountability in their life. So it's my view, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, and based on that principle, 
that children who are under the age of accountability, that they'll be taken up in the rapture. I don't think God would leave them behind without their parents, a three-year-old, just to flounder on his own. Um, so if a child has not reached the point where you know, he or she can make that decision for Christ, I, I take it that they'll be granted entrance into heaven, and in this case, via the rapture. And I think that principle is based on what God has revealed in Scripture, and it's, it's consistent with his character, with his gracious, merciful character. Now, some propose that only the children of believers will be raptured. Uh, I don't see that in Scripture because God doesn't make that distinction for a little child who dies whose parents are not a believer. In fact, sometimes little children die, and then the children, uh, the, the parents become a believer after the child dies. God uses that tragedy in their life to bring them to, to, to faith. Um, and let me just say, too, let's say a child is seven and the rapture takes place. Is the child accountable? I don't know. Maybe. And um, maybe God wouldn't take that child in the rapture because that child is old enough. You know, children mature at different ages. I have kids in the office every week, and I don't just, you know, indiscriminately baptize children because they say they want to be baptized. In fact, I'd say probably 60 or 70% of the kids who come in for an appointment, I say, well, let's see them again in eight months to a year. Because, um, you know, they have to be able to be convincing that they really own the gospel. And if they don't, I don't want to baptize them prematurely. But I I notice, you know, some kids, it's like walking. Some kids walk at nine months, some walk at 19 months. I don't know why, but that's just the way it is. And some kids at the age of seven just aren't all that you know, sharp in terms of their intellectual abilities. But then all of a sudden, nine, you think, man, this is a little Einstein. What happened? Uh, So they develop at different times in different ways, and God knows that. Um, But let's say a seven, eight, even nine-year-old has not received Christ, and they have that ability. They still have a given seven-plus years, if they survive that long, through the tribulation to respond. But God takes all those things into account. And... um, but it's it's not an issue that's explicitly taught in Scripture. So when you're asking me for a passage in the Revelation, there's not a passage that we're going to come to in the Revelation. But when you put a number of Scriptures together, like I do in the discovery class for what about those children who haven't yet received Christ, how does God deal with them? When you put it all together, I think you can get a biblical answer. So that's a great question. I appreciate it. Often comes up, and people often ask, well, what if my wife's pregnant, you know? And, well, the baby goes up. Well, does she come out of the womb? I don't know how God works all that, you know? Uh, but 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 God will work it out according to his perfect will. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, And John from Lindenborough, New Hampshire writes, I'm attending a church that's very small, often about 10 to 15 people attending. About half of those are family of the pastor. I'm not sure if I should change churches. The size of the church is not an issue for me, and it is the only church in my town. The reason I'm questioning this is the quality of the preaching and the accuracy of it. He's very pro-speaking in tongues and is mentioned in at least half of his sermons. The other thing is that he'll frequently say things like, someone is having pain behind their right knee, or someone is having a problem with a back issue this week, and that God is going to heal them. This makes me uneasy and, frankly, is a barrier to me and my family growing in the faith. When he starts off with something like that, I just tune him out the rest of the way 
and my wife says she's doing the same. What would you recommend? Well, there's a lot of error there in that church. And, you know, people, I think, like to present themselves as highly spiritual and that they've got, you know, this direct line to God where God's sending them a text message in their brain. And yeah, there's someone out there and they've, they're suffering, you know, they've got a pain in their stomach. Well, if you have a congregation of 200, there's probably someone out there with a pain in their stomach. Ah, he's talking about me. Ah, you know, and on and on you could go. Um but what they're basically saying is God is giving them fresh new revelation beyond the bounds of scripture. And they have this word of knowledge as they call it, which is not really how it's described in the new Testament where they've got this direct line to God. And, and some people don't always do it in the realm of healing. Sometimes they'll say, well, God told me. And then they give this big speech about what God specifically said. Well, listen, um, God is not giving new revelation. Now, he may lead you in accordance with his revelation, but he's not giving new revelation. And it's very dangerous to have kind of an open canon of Scripture because you're setting your people up for sheer disaster so that, you know, if Joseph Smith has a revelation from God and he gives us the Book of Mormon, how is that really any different? It may be a little bit longer, um, but how is it any different from what has happened with uh, this person here in New Hampshire with his pastor? It is no different. And so you have an open canon of Scripture, and that's very, very, very dangerous. So I, I would suggest that you find another church, and you may have to drive 30 minutes to go to church on Sunday morning. But you're setting your children up, too, for error. And where you have to say to your kids, well, you can't believe this, what the pastor says. So just ignore that whenever he says that. But over here, you can believe this. And you're really setting your child up for disaster and ultimately to become a, a, a recipient of various cults. And that's, that's not a good thing. So um, find another church if you can, even if you have to drive a little bit. It's the Lord's Day all day. And um, do what you need to do to be in a good, sound church. All right. We just had a listener call in, and they dictated their question that they'd like to know, what is the difference between a Hellenistic Jew and a Hebraic Jew? And secondly, in Revelation twenty-two eighteen, we're told if anyone adds to or subtracts anything from Scripture— God will add to him the plagues in the Bible. How do we define if different translations of the word or different interpretations of Scripture are violating this? Well, those are both good questions. Let me uh, first deal with the initial question that you asked. It comes from Acts chapter 6. Now, this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Now, the word native is in italics in the NASB, so it's inserted there by the translators to smooth out the English and to give the sense, but it's accurate in terms of what's being said. But literally reads, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic against the Hebrews. And so Jews is in italics and native is in italics, but that's the sense that in in we may not live in that culture, and so the goal of a translator, which is kind of related to the second half of your question, is to communicate. And so in either case, there was a dispute amongst the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraistic Jews uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. 
Now, understand why there were Hellenistic Jews there in the community. They were there because of Pentecost. Pentecost was a feast. It's the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks. And the pious Jew would observe Pentecost. And now we think of it purely in terms of a new covenant, um, you know, uh, holiday. But it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And so you'd come in for Passover. You'd be there for the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Breads, for the Feast of First Fruits, and well, and then you could leave. But this um, particular uh, time frame, things were so different. Jesus had died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and news began to spread. And then, of course, Pentecost came, and it's like a Thanksgiving celebration in America, and millions of people outside of Israel, Hellenistic Jews, they're Hellenistic in that they were born and raised outside of the land of Israel. If you go, for instance, to Israel today, you meet a lot of uh, Greek-type, Gentile-type, Jews, so to speak, if I can use that term. They're not Gentiles, but they're raised in more of a Gentile culture than in a Jewish culture. And by that, I mean, for instance, you'll have Russian-speaking Jews who don't know a word of Hebrew. And when they came to Israel, some of those Jews brought certain Russian mindsets. They had, oh, say, a, a great love for the arts and ballet, where maybe the Hebraistic Jews that were raised in Israel didn't have that same appreciation. And you had Ethiopian Jews, and you had Jews coming from France and from all over the world that are there. Well, um, outside of Israel, after the diaspora, you had people spread, and, and they were raised in the Greek culture, and most of them didn't even know Hebrew. And so they come for this holiday and they don't leave because when Pentecost happens, this is like a fulfillment of what people had dreamed about for centuries. And thousands of Jewish people, everyone up till Acts 7 that is converted is Jewish. And then we have some Samaritans that are saved and then the first Gentiles who are saved are in Acts 10. And so everyone is Jewish, and they're either Jews raised from within Israel itself, Hebraistic Jews, Jews, uh, Jewish Jews, so to speak, and then you have Greek Jews. And so obviously if your hometown was Jerusalem and you were a widow, then the way people were cared for were not by the government but by the people of God. So the people of God cared for their own. And it would be easy for all of these Hellenistic Jews who stayed and they didn't want to leave because they wanted to learn from the apostles before they went back home. And they stayed for several months. And that's why there arose in the church some real needs. If you remember, um, you have Barnabas who uh, sells a piece of land that uh, he has and he, he brings the proceeds to the apostles and lays it at their feet and Ananias and Sapphira see what he does, and they want to do it for the praise of men. And um, and they sell a piece of property, say, for $50,000, and they say, um, hey, um, Peter, we, we sold this property for 25000 and we want to give you the whole amount like Barnabas did. Well, really, they didn't sell it for twenty five; They sold it for fifty. They didn't have to give any of it, but they were seeking the praise of men. And if you remember the the blanket committee came along and carried them both out dead. Um, God dealt with them in a very stern way to send a message about deception. 
Now, if God dealt with us all in that way, we wouldn't have many people left in our churches, but still, he sent a message. And so here in Acts 6, you have these people who stayed, and they needed help. And so it's an interesting passage because a lot of people thought, well, guys, what are you going to do? You're apostles. Why don't you help us out with this problem? And they said, well, it's not desirable for us to to wait on tables because if we do, then we're going to neglect the weightier call that God's put in our life, and that's to give our attention to the preaching of the Word of God and to prayer. And so they found seven spirit-filled men, and they are men. It's the word arnir. Uh, find for among yourself seven men. And it's not the word anthropos that can refer to a man or a woman, but it's the word andros that can refer generically only to the male uh, person. And so the first deacons were males. These are the first deacons in all the Bible. The office of elder was in the Old Testament, carries over into the New Testament with a slightly different inference as to how they function, but still the principles found in the Old Testament. The office of deacon didn't exist in the Old Testament. And so the first deacons that we have are here in Acts chapter 6. So you've got these uh, two different kinds of Jews, and I don't know that it was so much a racial thing. Uh, Somebody might make it that, well, you know, we're Jewish Jews and they're Greek Jews, so we're not going to pay attention to them. I think it was more of a logistical issue that if you had a home there and you'd been raised there and there was already a program, you know, to deal with widows, um, that it would be easy to overlook some of the new people. And so they resolved the dispute, and the way they did it is phenomenal. It's a sermon in itself. Now, in reference to adding or subtracting to God's Word, we'll come to this when we come to the end of Revelation. So I will comment it on full there. I might even give a whole sermon on this. But when we talk about adding or subtracting to God's Word, we're not really dealing so much with translations, though we could be, though we could be. Uh, Eugene Peterson just died. He uh, wrote a translation called The Message. Uh, Rick, um, can you pull up The Message for me um, on your computer over there? And I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want you to pull up for me on your computer 1 Corinthians 6, and I want you to pull up 9 in 10, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 on the message. Let me read it out of the New American Standard, and this is how it would read out of um, most translations of the Bible. Uh, So here's the New American Standard. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor um, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that's pretty straightforward. Um, And he gives some specific sins and some specific issues. Now, let's read it out of the message. Start in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. All righty. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining him in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Stop Stop right there. So uh, he takes that whole long list, 
those who are fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And he, um, you could read verse 10, but, it, but, but he, 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 he kind of boils it all down. And he says, those who abuse, use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the, use and abuse the earth. Where, do, where does that even come from? I mean, there's no mention here about using and abusing the earth. And he has conveniently written out the sin of homosexuality, not found in the message. Now, understand the message is what we would call a paraphrased translation of the Bible. So it's not really a translation even. It's a commentary on the Bible, and but it's presented as a translation. And in the process, it's really changed the meaning of what God has said. And so he conveniently went through a number of passages throughout the message. And I have a course on bibliology. And on section six of bibliology, I do an analysis of various English translations. That, that What he did was just wrong. It was really, a, it was a rewrite of God's word. And that's very, 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 very dangerous. Now, God is the man's judge as to whether or not he was trying to add or subtract to scripture, but he certainly added some stuff and certainly wrote out some stuff. And you don't want to play around with God's word in that respect. Now, so you get into that when you get into potentially a paraphrase, though there are some paraphrase translations that were designed for people with, you know, a first or second grade reading level that made the Bible accessible to them. Um, So, you know, God has a plan, I think, sometimes in these different things. But with that said, still, uh, if you read the New American Standard or the ESV or the HCSB or the CSV or the KJV or the New KJV or the Net Bible, it's they're all going to read virtually the same in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sometimes you're dealing with issues of what word best represents the Greek or Hebrew word, and if you're trying to do uh, a formal equivalent translation where you're doing a word-for-word uh, equivalent of each uh, original word, sometimes there's not a single English word that will capture the original uh, word that God inspired it in. So I often begin the Bible line with um, a verse from Paul's letter to Timothy where we say, study and show yourself approved of God. That's how the King James reads it. Study and show yourself approved of God, Second Timothy 2.15. Um, by the way, that's someone asked me, what is Awana? What is Awana about? They asked me that at the new members' lunch on Sunday. I said, Awana, it's not Awana's, but it's Awana, stands for approved workman and not ashamed, and it's based on Second Timothy 2.15. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, one of my professors in seminary, his father actually came up with the name for that organization. Um, so the King James says, study and show yourself approved. Uh, the NASB doesn't even use the word study. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Well, which is it? Well, it's really not an either or, it's a both and. But if you're trying to do a word for word formal equivalent, there's not a single English word that will capture it. So he is talking about studying, so the King James is entirely accurate there, 
but it's not talking about any kind of study. It's talking about an earnest, diligent, hard study. You know, you go to the library in college and you spend three hours in there and hide your study and go, oh, I got nothing done, you know. Well, did you read? I thought you had a reading this time. Yeah, I read 100 pages. Well, how'd that go? Man, my mind was out in outer space. I don't even remember what I read. So that was a study, but it wasn't a diligent study. So one translation here in the English puts the emphasis on the diligence of approaching God's word. The other just uses the term study. Are, is one right? And they're both right. So uh, that's really not what we're talking about in the Revelation, which we will see when we come to. But what we're talking about in the Revelation is where we, we dispute what God has said, and we either add to it, which is very dangerous, and there are people, again, with an open canon, and that's why this, these friends from New Hampshire who have written us about, you know, the pastor having his, uh, you know, text message from God and, you know, this uh, facts from God, and this is, you know, there's somebody out there who's got, you know, a kidney problem, and this kind of extra revelation, it's very, very, very dangerous, and it's really walking closely to what Revelation is referring to. But we'll see when we come to that, and I'll spend a whole message on it. There's a lot more to it than just that. Great question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, we've got about a minute and a half, and um, I'm not sure we've got enough time to deal with what Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 means about ascending on high and descending on new parts no, of the No, let's save it for next time. So you it's want to too talk important. about uh, Jasper County? Yeah, so um, for those of you who are listening, Uh, By God's grace, we are doing an informational meeting in December, the first Sunday night in December, which is December what, 3rd or December 2nd? Yeah, December 2nd at uh, 5.30 in the evening. Or is it five? Uh, Pull it up for me, Rick. I I don't even know the dates. But uh, for those of you that live in Jasper County, maybe Varnville, Ridgeland, uh, there's a lot of churches across the nation that are going to be closing down in the next year. In fact, in the next five years, um, it's projected by the Wall Street Journal that 50,000 churches will close. So on December the 2nd, 5 p.m., at the Oak Grove Baptist Church, we're doing an informational meeting. This is a church that has shrunk to just a handful of people. And they know they have to close their doors, and they have offered us the building in for it to become a branch of Community Bible Church. So we're praying and seeking God, and and if this is something that would interest you, we're going to have an informational meeting. Look, if you're in a good church, I want you to stay in that church. Support your pastor, pray for him. But if you're in the church like uh, the guy just wrote me from New Hampshire that's semi-wacko, you need to be in a healthy church, and this might be an alternative for you. So on Sunday night, December the 2nd at 5 p.m., we'll be doing an informational-slash-interest-level meeting. And if the information and interest level is high, then we're going to start a campus there. You can go online to get more information on this. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.